This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And in this episode, I want to talk about hope. Now, maybe I'm late to the party on this and everybody already knows about it, but I want to talk about something that uh, I had seen and kind of vaguely heard about, but I really looked into it a little bit more recently. There's a company, I think it's a Dutch company. It's called Mars One. They're putting together, obviously you figured it out based on the name, they're putting together uh, a group of people. They're starting with unmanned and then they're going to send some actual people to Mars. And what they've done is they've opened up, uh, I don't think it's like a random lottery, but they're allowing people, civilians, it's closed now so you can't go apply anymore, but to apply to go and travel with their company to Mars. Now there's one big catch. Uh, The head of the company has said that the technology doesn't exist right now for a return trip. So if you're signing up to go to Mars, you're signing up to be on Mars, if everything goes perfect getting there, for the rest of your life. Now, they had... 200,000 people sign up to be part of this drawing or lottery or whatever process application to go through and see if they can be one of the four people that gets to go to Mars with this company Mars One. And then you've got Elon Musk, who I'm guessing everybody at least knows that name. He's the head of Tesla Motors and does some Uh, solar electricity and different stuff like that. He's planning on sending people to Mars in six to 10 years. And he thinks that in 40 to 100 years from now, there will be 1 million people living on Mars. Now, if I said any of that stuff, it sounds like, what is this guy talking about? He doesn't, you know, he's just making this stuff up. But when Elon and this other company, Mars One, when they're organizing and actually figuring out, okay, here's the logistics, here's how we're going to do it, here's the timeline, kind of feels like a legit thing that's going to happen. And when I start thinking about these people signing up to go and live and die on Mars, uh, I'm intrigued by it. Because I think, you know, there's a small percentage or whatever of the people who are just explorers at heart, who if they were born 200 years ago, they would have been exploring the Wild West in the United States. If they were born further back than that, they would have been trying to circumnavigate the globe on a ship or whatever. They're just wired to go and seek new experience, new adventure explore, discover things that nobody else has ever been a part of before. But I think the majority of people, out of those 200,000 people that signed up to potentially go to Mars, I think a huge chunk of them did that because um, they feel like it's kind of a fresh start. They look around at their lives and they go, man, if this is all I'm leaving... I'm ready to start over because they look at broken relationships and they look at 
maybe a bad economic situation that they're in, that they can't see things turning for the better, they think, well, if it's going to change, it's only going to change for the worse. Um, they're in a job situation or a living situation, and they just say, this is awful. When I look around, I don't see hope. I don't have hope. And these people are signing up to go live in a barren wasteland where they die if they breathe the air. That's insane. But I really think that some people feel like that's kind of their best shot somehow because they don't have hope. And I want to talk about something from Scripture of uh, I think how this is really relatable because we, when we read through Scripture, we don't really think of it this way, but it's important to know that from the time that the last book of the Old Testament was written, that was Nehemiah, from the time that the New Testament, uh, the events in the New Testament happened, it's a gap of around 400 years. And that is often called the 400 years of silence because from the, the writing of Nehemiah until the events in the New Testament, the birth of Christ, 400 years where the people of Israel didn't see God move, where they were looking around and they just couldn't find hope. Now, it's not just a 400 years where not a whole lot happened and they're just sort of waiting. Uh, what happened is the people of Israel, they spent those 400 years being ruled and oppressed by different powers, different empires that were right around their area. So they start under the Persians. And the Persians, as far as being ruled by some other empire, they were pretty good. They allowed the Jewish people to continue to practice their own religion. Now, some of the stuff about, you know, the political things changed and rule moved from Israel doing self-governing to the Persians kind of coming in and running their own stuff, but they still allowed the Jewish people to practice their own religion. And then uh, someone who is familiar to all of us enters the scene of history, Alexander the Great. He conquered the Persian Empire and really pretty much the known world at that time. And so he brought Greek culture and Greek language. And it was a decent time, but a lot of what was built into Greek culture was the worship of many, many, many gods. And you probably remember this from learning about all the Greek gods in school or the myths at some point in your life. And you remember they've got a god of war and a god of love and a god of the sea and a god of all everything. And so that kind of thinking uh, kind of began to push in on Israel. And in the midst of that, uh, Alexander the Great, if you remember, he died young and he hadn't really set up a plan for succession. So his empire was broken up between four of his generals and not right away, but eventually in this divided kingdom of Alexander, uh, there was a guy who rose to power 
and his name was Antiochus. He renamed himself Antiochus Epiphanes. And if that word Epiphanes, if that sounds familiar, uh, it's because it's the word, that's where we got the idea of Epiphany from. And so he was calling himself Epiphanes, which meant the visible God. And he was determined to exterminate the Jews and their religion. He started, uh, he made circumcision punishable by death. And that was a big part of the Jewish religious rites and the way that they showed that they were a separate people devoted to God. He sold thousands of Jewish families into slavery. He destroyed all the copies of scripture that he could find. He made it punishable by death to have a copy of scripture. He outlawed the Sabbath and he sacrificed a pig in the temple, which if you remember uh, the, the ceremonial uh, religious rites that were part of being a Jewish person, uh, a pig is an unclean animal. They weren't even allowed to eat pigs. And this guy goes in their temple and sacrifices this most vile animal in their most holy place on earth. He really wanted them to know, I am Epiphanes, the visible God, and I'm here and I'm running things now. Your God that you're worshiping, uh, you have no reason to expect that he's more powerful than me. You have no reason to have hope that salvation from my rule is coming. And then, after a while, the Greek Empire was taken over by the Romans. It was about 60 years before Jesus' birth, Rome conquered. And so this was the culture and the world that Jesus was born into. And we know that world a little bit more. It's a little more familiar to us. They taxed and they oppressed the people. Um, they had their way of making sure that the Jewish people remembered that they were subject to the Romans. And so while that's going on politically, religiously, the Pharisees and the Sadducees really rose to power and they started, uh, the Pharisees were really strict and they one-upped God's laws sometimes and tried to prove their holiness by taking things to the nth degree of seriousness. And they said, this is what God requires. The Sadducees, they were kind of um, the representatives in some ways of the upper class. And so they led the religion that way. So you look at what's happening, not only to the nation of Israel, but to the religion of the Jewish people. And you see that over these 400 years, this gap from Nehemiah until Christ's birth, and you look at all the terrible stuff that's happening, and I think the people that were living in the midst of that day would have felt 
a whole lot like they had no reason for hope. And so what they started doing is looking forward to the Messiah, this promised deliverer that God was going to send. And they were waiting anxiously because they knew that something needed to change. They knew that they had no reason to have hope unless God did something. And I want to read you a passage. This is just one verse from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And what Christ's birth at the end of this 400 years of silence signified was that God was not done with his people. God was not silent. God was not leaving his people without hope. And what Peter is pointing out here is that Christ lived his life. He died a death that he didn't deserve. And he was raised again to give us new birth into a living hope. Now, even when I talk about that idea, new birth into a living hope, I'm guessing that there are probably some people that are listening and going, yeah, I really need that, but what I'm living in right now is really, really hard stuff. And I'm at a spot where, you know, it's, it's cool to be able to talk about new birth, living hope, when life's going really good. Um, but right now, for me, life isn't going really good. I want to share a little bit of my own story because uh, for me, life isn't going really good either. Uh, I've been dealing with, I, I don't have a word to say it. I've been dealing with an undiagnosed health thing. I don't have, I don't know what to call it because I don't know what it is uh, for about seven years now. And what this has been for me is all day, every day, I feel lightheaded, spacey, brain fogged, fatigued. Uh, really, I guess the best way to describe it is I feel like I slept one hour last night, no matter what, all day, every day. That's my baseline. I never have a good day where I feel normal, uh, but I do have bad days where I feel doubly as bad as I feel on a regular day. And in the midst of this, I've gone to see an unbelievable number of different doctors. I've seen neurologists and I've seen sleep specialists and I've seen dietitians and chiropractors and I don't even know, MRIs, brain scans. I've gone to Mayo Clinic and every single one of those doctor meetings and test things starts out the same way. Uh, it starts with hope. And they say, oh yeah, we see stuff like this a lot. You know, we should have you feeling better in a couple weeks. And 
every single one of them has ended the same way. They go, hey, we're really sorry. We don't know. We can't figure out what it is. We thought we could, but we don't know. Um, Best of luck next time. Don't forget to pay your bill on the way out. And that's how it's gone for me for seven years. And while I'm recording this episode, I'm still in the midst of that. I still don't have an answer. Uh, I'm still living, trying to figure it out. And I'm guessing that there's people listening right now and you're going, man, what you're describing, Alan, what you're dealing with, uh, I wish that the thing I was dealing with was that easy. I'm dealing with chronic pain or I'm dealing with a terminal diagnosis or I'm dealing with a breakdown of a relationship that I thought was going to last forever. I can't see my kids right now or my kids have chosen not to talk to me or I'm dealing with the aftermath of a miscarriage. My spouse has passed away after 10, 20, 30 years of marriage and I'm totally lost. Um, What I believe in the midst of the pain and the what feels like hopelessness that we find ourselves going through right now, um, I believe that God meets us not the way that we wish he would meet us, right? Because I can't tell you how many times, I can't tell you how many years I spent saying, God, the only way that I'm willing for you to show up and bring hope in my situation right now is healing, a diagnosis, an answer, some steps that I can take, some treatment that I can start going through that's going to make me feel better. Because, you know, think about uh, the role that I'm in. I speak and teach and preach. Uh, I write. I do this podcast. Those are all things that you need to be thinking clearly in order to be able to do at really the level that you want to do them at. And I, I can't think clearly. And I look and I say, okay, I'm defining for you, God, what hope looks like in the midst of this situation. And I'm guessing that a lot of you listening that are in the middle of something that you don't have an answer for right now, or maybe you do know the answer and it's not the outcome that you wanted. Um, I think that the birth of Jesus is a great thing for us to look at when we're in the midst of that because he was the long-awaited Savior who was the response after these 400 years of silence for God to say, my people, you are not in this alone. You are not without hope. I'm here. And Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, was born. But, and we've talked about this a little bit already in a couple of other episodes, he, for the most part, was rejected by the Jewish people because they believed that the Messiah, this anointed one from God, his role 
was going to be to bring hope the way they defined it. And they said, okay, if you, Jesus, if you're the Messiah, that means you're going to raise up an army. You're going to defeat the Romans who are oppressing us and taxing us and not letting us do things the way we want to do things. And you're going to totally solve all of our problems. And we know that that's not the kind of salvation that Jesus came to bring. And because of that, a whole lot of people who had spent their entire lives waiting for God to send his Messiah, when he did, they rejected him. And I think that for many of us that right now are waiting, dealing with something heavy, something that we wish we could trade away. You know, I, I think I sometimes laugh, you know, thinking about the idea. So many people that have grown through tough stuff, um, they say, man, I've, I've learned so much. I wouldn't trade this experience for anything because I have grown so much out of it. I'm going to be totally honest with you. Um, God has used what I've been dealing with to teach me so much, to help me grow so much, but I'm not one of those people. Um, I would trade it. I really would. It's been unbelievable how challenging this has made my life day in and day out. And I've grown a lot, but I'll tell you what, it's been at huge personal cost. And if you're in the midst of something like that, and right now you're saying, God, there's only one answer you can give me that I'm going to feel like has any value. And it's this. You, you know what it is. You've already described it and defined it in your mind. And you're saying, God, if you're going to bring hope, if that's who you are, this is what that means. And what I want to caution us about is just like so many people in ancient Israel who were waiting for the Messiah when he showed up to bring hope and it didn't look like what they wanted, they rejected him. I think there's some good um, lessons and instruction in there for us that we can get so zeroed in on what the answer would look like, on how God could bring hope in our situation that when he actually does, but it's not the answer that we wanted, it's not the way that we wanted him to move, we can be pretty quick to reject it ourselves. And, um, I, you know, I'm not, I feel weird even talking about this, but I'm going to because throughout my health journey, um, I ended up writing, it's not like an autobiography, uh, but I wound up writing a book, and it's called Journeying with Pain, Finding Hope When You Don't Find Answers. And I have a feeling that uh, even that subtitle probably hits some of us the wrong way. What do you mean? How do you find hope if you don't find answers? Um, I totally <laughs> get where you're coming from. Uh, I spent, I don't know, four and a half, five years, something like that, just saying, God, unless you show up this way, um, I, 
I'm not going to consider it you showing up. And if you're in the midst of something like that, you're dealing with something heavy, some kind of pain, some kind of uh, relationship breakdown, or you're dealing with a health thing yourself, or you're dealing with a loss or grief or whatever it is, um, I really think this, this is why I wrote this book. For other people, not going through my exact thing, but going through something to find some hope. And so it's a journey through kind of how it looked for me to move from um, feeling hopeless to allowing God to use what I was going through to draw me closer to him. And I'm not trying to sell these books. If you want to you know, find that and check it out for yourself. Uh, it, it is available at winningathome.com. It's Journeying with Pain. And I wrote the book to help people going through something similar to what I've been going through. It doesn't have to be a health thing, but some kind of thing that you wish was different, where you look and you say, God, I have the way that you need to show up. I have the answer of what it would look like for you to bring hope. And what I believe is that in the midst of that, if we're open to it, God will meet us in unexpected ways. And what God will do is bring, like we read from 1 Peter, bring new birth into a living hope in the midst of situations where we could never picture that happening. And that's what God does. When things feel hopeless, when it feels like there's no way that God could make anything good out of this situation, when I look around and say, man, I'd almost be better off just jumping on a rocket ship with those people headed to Mars because at least I get to start over. When we feel that hopeless, when we feel like God's been silent, like Israel felt for 400 years, obviously we, we don't have that sort of a time span, but when it emotionally feels that way, what I believe is that God is ready to help us experience and live out this new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.